And so if you want the highest productivity per team, you want to cap it at seven or nine people or so at most. Um, and that's kind of like a kind of like a standard thing across many companies uh, in the world that they've discovered. And I found that to be very true as well as I grew my business as well as that once we get to one team of 10 people, uh, it gets a little bit unwieldy because there's there could be a lot of miscommunication, people miss meetings, people have to catch up. Uh, there's a lot of time needed for one-on-one meetings and making sure everyone's on the same page and aligns. Because the biggest thing about teams is that we all want to row in the same direction at the same speed, rowing and being in sync at the same time. And if we can do that, then our boat can really go fast and far. But if we're, you know, one person is going east and the other person is going west, but we're trying to go north, there's no productivity, there's no alignments, right? So as a team, we wanna make sure we have alignments every single day. To overcome, you must educate. Educate not only yourself, but educate anyone seeking to learn. We are all dead America. We can all learn something. To learn, we must challenge what we already understand. The way we do that is through conversation. Sometimes we have conversations with others. However, some of the best conversations happen with ourselves. Reach out and challenge yourself. Let's dive in and learn something right now. Today we are speaking with Tan Pham. Tan is the founder of Asian Efficiency, and he is also a host of the podcast, The Productivity Show. Tan, could you please introduce yourself? Let people know just a little more about you, please. Absolutely. Thank you, Ed, for having me on your show today. Um, so I was born in a refugee camp in the Philippines. And uh, what's crazy about that story is that my parents actually met each other inside of a refugee camp. So they both independently left Vietnam on a wow. boat uh, to escape communism. And then they met each other at the refugee camp. They were there for three years. So they start, you know, they met each other there. They started dating there. They got married inside of a refugee camp. And then they had me. And so when I was six months old, we were fortunate enough to be able to immigrate to the Netherlands. So I, I grew up in a really small town about an hour outside of Amsterdam. And uh, there's a photo of me and my parents at the airport when we're about to go fly to Amsterdam. And uh, all we had was a briefcase with some documents, uh, a duffel bag with some clothing, and then um, and then a diaper bag for me. <laughs> and so we really didn't have much, you know, growing up. And we were very fortunate to make something out of ourselves. Uh, my parents were working six, seven days a week. Uh, I never really saw them much growing up because I had to take care of myself. And, you know, I remember going to school, my mom would teach me how to prepare meals when I would get home by myself as a like six, seven year old kid. So I had to grow up very fast, learn things on my own, uh, spend a lot of time alone learning and, and educating myself because I loved reading. And one of my favorite activities was always going to the library with my mom. Uh, and picking up books. And uh, so I was always a self learner. And so uh, when I went to high school, I said, you know what, I want to move to the United States. That's where I've always wanted to be. Because when I was six years old, my parents saved up enough money to 
allowed me to go to the States where most of my family is. So most of them are in Los Angeles and uh, they would stay behind so that they can continue to work on the farm while I was, you know, uh, spending time with my grandpa and, you know, grandma and uncles. And so when I came back from that trip uh, six weeks later, I said, you know what? Olive Garden is the best thing in the world. McDonald's is the best thing in the world. This is <laughs> the best thing ever. Like I want to live here. Um, and so ever since I was six, I, I made that decision to move to the state. So when I was 18, uh, I ended up moving to the to Los Angeles to go to school there. But then I committed cardinal sin number one, which is dropping out of school, uh, which every Asian household will say that is the worst thing you can do. And so uh, I didn't speak to my parents for two years because they were so disappointed when, you know, they sacrificed so much to move countries to give me a better opportunity to then kind of squander that opportunity in their eyes. Um, but I started my business then, which is Asian efficiency. And it started off as a passion project, me just blogging every single week about what I've learned over the years about productivity, efficiency, goal setting. And it was just a public journal in a way. And it just really resonated with people. Um, and about a year later, I accidentally turned it into a business because there was so much demand for training and information and coaching. Uh, so 12 years later, we're still here. And I'm very fortunate to uh, make a living doing something I'm very passionate about. That's opportunity, you know, and making sure you take advantage of that opportunity. That's really what America is truly about. A lot of us Americans, we take advantage of that, or we we see that in an odd light. But I notice a lot of people that have immigrated really respect and understand the true meaning behind what America has to offer. And that's truly remarkable. And, you know, it it, it is in itself just a good way to start a podcast off knowing that you came from some place that had no opportunity and you turned it into something, even though your parents may not have agreed with the way you've done it. You tend to take opportunity and that's what America's about turning it into what you see. And you did that well. How did that transpire? What what was the catalyst to start it all? So when I was going to the library with my mom every single week, um, she would allow me to pick up books. And I was naturally drawn to the encyclopedias of the world. So the Encyclopedia of the Ocean, the Encyclopedia of Africa, the Encyclopedia of you know, animals. And I would just learn facts and memorize them. And I thought I was becoming smarter by doing that. And it wasn't until one day I came across a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I'm sure many people have heard of. But in case you have not, it's basically Robert a book Kiyosaki. about this. Yes, sir. It's a book about a young boy growing up with two dads. One is his biological dad, which is uh, an educator and works for works within the government system. And then he has his rich dad, which is actually his friend's dad, who is an entrepreneur. And uh, those two dads are like the complete opposites of each other. One praises, hey, you should, you know, get a typical job. You, you want to make sure that the government takes care of you versus the other person, the other dad, the rich dad saying, hey, you should seize opportunity, take control of your life, take control of your destiny and go that path because nobody is going to help you. You're the only person who can help yourself. 
And so I felt like I was reading a forbidden book because my parents, obviously they didn't know any better because they had very little and uh, we, we didn't come from much. You know, their path was in their mind, hey, take this traditional path, go get a job, become a lawyer, become a doctor, become an attorney, a dentist. And they had good intentions. And, you know, I still love my parents and we are talking today, unfortunately. Um, and so that was the path I was given. And that was the thing we were talking about at dinners every single night. And so when I uh, was reading this book, it was like a complete 180 of what I was being told. And so it actually inspired me to start my first business. So when I was 13, I remember taking my mom to the office where you had to like incorporate your company in the Netherlands. And I was too young to incorporate a company. So my mom actually had to sign off being the, the legal representative of the company because I was underage. But I was started my company at age 13. I taught myself how to code. So when I went to the library, I would pick up computer science books and software engineering books. And I taught myself how to code. So I was able to attract uh, clients, uh, companies in the Netherlands to build websites for them. So I was one of the first to build websites using specific technology, which we call RSS feeds today, which I'm sure since you're in podcasting, you know what RSS feeds are. But back in the day, that was like a brand new thing. And I was one of the first people to be able to uh, interpret RSS feeds and kind of like break it down and actually use the data that now many companies use nowadays. And so uh, I was able to attract a lot of clients and I actually had to teach my high school buddies to code because I was getting so many clients and I didn't know who to hire. So I was, I thought, you yeah. know, I'm going to help my buddies and we're going to work on this together. So I taught them how to code. We did like a boot camp every single weekend to teach them how to code. And I told them, read this book, you know, go check out this website. And so I had a little agency um, growing up and it wasn't until I moved to LA when I sold that company, because when I was on the other side of the world, there was like a nine, 10 hour difference. And it was just very hard to keep up with clients. And back then working remotely was not even a thing. It was just something that very few people did. And the technology didn't really exist to make it efficient and effective like it is today. So I found it very challenging to, to do that. And so I ended up selling my company so I could focus on school. But that was really the, the seed that planted everything was reading that one particular book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And it's a book I still recommend today to people, especially if they're interested in business, entrepreneurship, or maybe they realize that the traditional path is not for them. And there's uh, a, another path that people can go on. That's right. You know, I've heard that book has changed so many lives. And just the perspective given it's a life changer in its own and people really need to grasp that and understand the opportunities there you just have to make it or find it and sometimes that's difficult a lot of that has to do with what you do is efficiency putting things together and making them work effectively what are some of those things that make that happen in creating an efficient lifestyle. So at my company, Asian Efficiency, um, I've worked with over 16,000 clients over the last 12 years. And I have clients who, you know, are executives at big Fortune 500 companies like Goldman Sachs, Louis Vuitton, uh, Google, uh, American Airlines. And after working with so many different clients, I started to notice similar challenges that everyone had, but there wasn't one particular method that everybody could use. And so over time, I 
kind of created my own methodology, which I call the T framework. And it stands for time, energy, and attention. So T-E-A, T. And so I think of productivity as like three different pillars. So you want to make sure you maximize your time, you maximize your energy, you maximize your attention. Because if we don't have the time to do the things we want to do, then it simply won't get done, right? Likewise, if we don't have the energy to do something, you could have all the time in the world, but if you're fatigued and tired, nothing is going to get done. Even if you have all the skills and the, all the apps you would ever need to, to do stuff, it's kind of like having a, a beautiful sports car in your garage, but if there's no fuel in it, it simply won't go anywhere, even though it has all this That's potential. Right. And likewise, with attention, we want to make sure we maximize that. So you're always focusing on the right things because nothing pains me more than you spending all this time and energy working on the wrong thing or climbing the wrong ladder for you to realize at the end to go, hey, all this time was wasted. All this energy was wasted because I wasn't focusing on the right thing. So if we're focusing on the right things, we're diverting our energy in the right way and also spending time on the things that matter, now we're living an efficient life. And so anytime I'm working with someone, I'm always looking at T. Are they maximizing their time? Do they have the energy to do the work? And also, are they focusing on the right things? And if we have all three in place, you're going to be superhuman productive, as I like to say. But oftentimes, most people, they lack one, two, sometimes even three of them. And so the first thing I like to do is just identify which one is the most impactful in your life. And let's address that first, because sometimes people come to us because they lack energy, but most people actually lack time in their life. And that's why they come to us. And so we try to address that first and then move on to the other pillars. So how big is automation in this? Nowadays, I know uh, I use a lot of automation to make sure things get done and ticked off. And I, I still fall back on the traditional, you know, notebook and pad here, but I like to have tools to make this happen without even thinking about it. What's automation to you and how much of that do you recommend? Yeah, when I think of automation, I think a lot about tech, right? So like tools you might be using, mm -hmm. technology, uh, but also even consider habits and routines as automation as well. Because once something becomes mm -hmm. a habit, you don't think about it anymore. You just do. Just like when you're brushing mm -hmm. your teeth, you don't think about how you're brushing your teeth. You just go, you know, and you're done, right? Two minutes later, it's yeah. uh, it's done with because you didn't really think about it. You've done it so many times now that you know what to do. So I think of it as like two prongs in a way. Like how can we, you as a person, automate things where you're not thinking about stuff anymore, like habits and routines, but also mm -hmm. when we're interacting with the world using technology, how can we automate a lot of that stuff as well? And most things kind of fall either under time or energy because they kind of help maximize your time and energy. And so when we talk about tech, one of my favorite apps in the world is called Text Expander. And if you're somebody who works behind a computer, you probably type a lot of things over and over and over again. Think of your name, think of your address, think of your phone number, think of certain emails that you write, right? When you create an invoice, like the text is very, very similar most of the time. And mm -hmm. so imagine, for example, when I type in my phone number on a field, uh, instead of typing my whole phone number, which is 10 digits, I would type in uh, hashtag PH on my keyboard. And then with text expander, what it will do is it will recognize that as a almost like a keyboard shortcut to then change that mm -hmm. into my phone number. 
And so I do this with my email address as well. When I type in like T-H-A and then uh, at, um, then it will expand it into my full email address, which is you know quite lengthy. And so I have this for like, you know, emails as well. So for example, if someone wants to email me for their podcast, I might say, oh, here's a quick bio of mine. And then it has a bio that expands because I type in uh, hashtag bio. So it automatically expands that into like a five sentence thing because oftentimes I would end up copying those things or I would look for it somewhere. Like I have it written down somewhere, but then I would have to click and find it versus if I just type it in, it would you know expand in one second and then you're much more uh, efficient that way. So text expander is a great tool. It's both available on Windows and Mac. Highly recommend it. Saves you hundreds of hours a year. The more you use it, the more time you save. So that's one tool I, I like to recommend. Um, now, a new thing that's kind of come up, maybe you've heard about it, is ChatGPT, which is the new yeah. artificial intelligence tool. And yeah. uh, as of where you are recording this, it's about roughly two months old. So it's pretty new. However, um, this is a game changer, honestly. I've been playing with it every single yeah. day to see how we can automate it, uh, what we do at work. And it's taken over a lot of the writing, the creative writing, the copywriting, um, fixing grammar errors, mistakes, um, brainstorming. Wow. Uh, it's done a lot. And if you're not familiar with it, go to chats.openai.com. Sign up for it. It's free right now. And just play with it. And you know, if you need a prompt, just type in, write me a story about someone who started a podcast and grew it to millions of subscribers. And just see what happens. The machine will literally just create a story for you based on what I just said. And you can get really creative with this. And this is, I think, the future for automation. Yeah, I, I've been experimenting with AI also. And I use uh, autoblogger.ai. That that stuff is just kind of freaky to me, you know, that <laughs> they can actually go out and do what I would normally have to do, do all of that research, but they do it. Boom. Uh, I type in my query and it's back within what five, ten seconds at the most. And it's wow, that is just amazing. So yes, I can see that is a time saver for sure you know distractions is a big thing in our life facebook the telephone these things just drive me crazy because every time they bing or whatever you're automatically wanting to grab the thing to check who's tweeting what i, I noticed for myself I turn the sound off for notifications now. I make sure that uh, all of those sounds I can't hear anymore. And it really does save me a lot of time because I don't really need to know what's going on in Facebook to get what I need to do done. But it is a very distractive thing in our life. How do you deal with that? Yeah, I've been struggling with this for many years myself. Uh, I remember <laughs> I was actually the f one of the first people who bought an iPhone. I remember when it came out, I went all the way to San Francisco to go to the AT&T wow. store, line up on day one to get the iPhone. And 
you know, that changed the game for everybody, the, the smartphone, and it made life very convenient. So it made life very accessible, but also you became more accessible, whether it's companies yeah. wanting to reach out to you, email, you know, other people, they can directly contact you. Um, and that's a blessing and a curse at the same time. So I've been trying to figure out over the years and also working with clients, like what's the best way to do this? And honestly, when I found the simple solution that works most effective for everybody is two things. One is when you grab a new phone or you install a new computer, what you should do is the first setting you should do is by default is turning off all notifications. Typically what happens is when you install a new phone or computer, all notifications are turned on. So you don't have to select which ones you want to turn off. I would actually flip it around and say, when you install a new phone or computer, turn off all notifications by default and then flip on the notifications that you really want. And oftentimes, if we can limit it to maybe three to five programs, you minimize so many distractions that way because now you probably save yourself hundreds of hours of distractions because anytime we get distracted, it can take up to 22 minutes to get back into flow. And there's a lot yeah. of research that shows that how just one minuscule distraction just throws you off for a little bit. And then it kind of takes you a while to kind of build up that momentum again, to get into that focus mode or that flow state up sometimes up to 22 minutes. So one email notification can literally throw off, you know, a whole hour of productivity yeah. for you. And so yeah. uh, that's why I always, I always recommend that you turn off notifications and only turn on the ones you really want. And you can even do that with the email. If email is really that important to you for some roles that are like salespeople, uh, customer service people, one thing you could do is say, only give me a notification if it's an email from this person or from that client and then get a notification. So you can kind of, you know, customize which notifications you get, uh, which is a little bit more advanced strategy. But the big idea here is turn off all notifications and only flip on the ones that you want. And typically I would restrict it to three to five apps. And that makes it much easier for you to focus. Now the other thing is, and this is so simple that people, when they first hear it, they go, I can't believe you just told me this. And it's so simple. <laughs> and it's yet so effective, which is as we are recording right now, my phone is actually in a different room. I can't even reach it within arm's length right now. Like if I yeah. want to check something on my phone, I would have to go up, you know, go to the other room, open up a drawer and then grab my phone. Like, and that friction oftentimes will then stop me from going, oh, you know, checking Twitter is really not that important, right? It's just because I'm adding friction to checking my phone, it makes it much easier for me to stay focused on what I'm doing right now. So uh, you could, you know, go even a little bit more quote unquote extreme and just put your phone upstairs. So you have to walk all the way up to grab your, and most people wouldn't even do that at that point, because then when you do it, you feel so silly. The fact that you go all the way upstairs just to check your Twitter notification for one second and that walk all the way back. You just feel so silly when you do that. And so by putting your phone in a different room, we allow ourselves to create friction between, oh, I want to check this to actually being able to do that. And the more friction we add, the harder it is for us to instill that or make that a habit, uh, which is, you know, the opposite of what we want when we're trying to build a habit. If we're trying to exercise, for example, every day, how do we make it as easy as possible for us to exercise, right? Uh, and we want to eliminate friction. But in this case, if we want to minimize distractions, the more friction we can add, the less likely you will get distracted. 
Yeah, that's a good tip. I like that a lot. Plus, uh, you might get a little more exercise also. <laughs> uh, work, working from home now is a big major thing and learning how to keep it all together with all of the home distractions is just something else. What, what's your suggestion for home workers? Yeah. When, uh, everything started in 2020, um, I know it was a transition for a lot of people and, uh, I was very fortunate in the sense that I started working from home since 2009. So, you know, by that point, I've been working from home for 11 years. So for me, nothing really changed, but I know for millions of people uh, all over the world, it did. And so I was able to offer a lot of guidance and, and training for a lot of companies and individuals during that time. And I probably worked the most in 2020 and 2021, personally, <laughs> because people needed this help so much. So this uh, this topic is very uh, personal to me in that sense, because I've been able to make such a big difference. And so everyone's situation is going to be a little bit different because some people live in a small studio, some people live in, you know, in a house with multiple bedrooms. Um, but if we can, I would always find a dedicated space for you to do your work at home. So if you're in a home where you can have a home office, I would always 100% recommend that so that you can separate work from personal life when you enter your home office. Now, some people, they might work or live in a studio in a really small apartment. And if that's the case, one thing I would then recommend is that you dedicate a certain maybe portion of your dinner table or some part of your home to just focus on work. And so when you sit down at that moment with your computer, all you do is work and nothing else, right? And we want to separate personal and work as much as possible. So I don't want you to work in your bed, for example, because then you start to associate work and sleeping with the same thing. And we don't want that. We actually want to dis dis disassociate that as much as possible. Uh, so that's the first thing. The other thing is if you are able to work from home, oftentimes that also means you can work from other locations. That could be a coffee shop. It could be a co-working space. It could be an office that you rent. Um, for those who work from home and they have, for example, roommates or they have a lot of people around, kids, and you find it very challenging to work from home for various reasons, then I would recommend that you actually rent an office space somewhere, ideally somewhere nearby where you can walk or get there within a few minutes and make that your, your dedicated space to get work done. And so even though you're not quote unquote in an office, like a traditional sense, um, you do go to a space where you're trying to focus on work because you know when we have kids or when we with this other stuff, distractions going on at home that are out of your control, the best thing you can control and influence is actually where you decide to get your work done. And sometimes outside of the home might be a better option. Um, however, if for whatever reason that's not feasible due to cost, as an example, uh, one thing I always want to communicate then is whether you're living with roommates, a significant other, with kids, is that you make sure that you tag team on your schedules. So for example, if you know that you have a meeting at 10 a.m. in the morning for 30 minutes where you have to be dead silent, uh, everybody around you, make sure you communicate that to everybody ahead of time, whether it's in a group chat, whether you have a Monday or a, a weekly or daily meeting with your significant other before you start the day, like make sure everyone is aligned with what's going on so we can be supportive of each other, just like you can be supportive of the other person if we need to be quiet or we need to take the kids out during a specific time. So it's all about communication and at that point. And, um, and 
if you find yourself in a situation where, you know, you have really young kids and they need you whenever they need you, that's okay. Think of it as like a season of life where you can't always dictate your terms because you have this little human, you know, screaming for your name, for your attention and for their needs. Uh, and that's a beautiful thing. That's, you know, a, a portion of, of your life where you have to dedicate, you know, your time and hours and attention on them. Um, but as they get older, it gets a little easier as well, where they can, you know, go off on their own, do their own thing. Uh, so you can do what you need to do. So just think of it as like a temporary solution, not as a permanent. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned communication that, that kind of segues us into what I wanted to talk about communicating with teams and making sure you're getting the most efficiency out of building your team what type of team members do you want and how do you know if they're going to be a good fit and how do you communicate the chores or the tasks that need to be done and get that done in an efficient effective way in a team manner yeah, uh, everyone has a different approach to team building. Uh, I don't think there's one or best way to do it. Everyone's uh, approach, I think, is valid. Um, however, I think there's a few tenants that I think everyone would benefit from, especially if we're in a remote setting in uh, talking about teams, uh, especially since I've been running a remote company for 12 years now. One of the things I've discovered is we can be remote the whole time. However, whenever we get in person, and we actually get to know each other on a personal level. And we actually have dinner together, lunches together. There's this new level of connection that happens between people that then when they go off back to their home country or their city and we need to work remote, there's a new level of engagement that didn't exist prior to that. And so if you're running a remote company, I would highly recommend that you get all of your people together in one place at least once a year, if not, you know, once a quarter, if you can. Uh, to increase the productivity of everybody, because once people get to know each other, they get their sense of humor, they get how they think and operate and how they brainstorm, and they can actually see it in person, uh, you create all these efficiencies and increases in productivity that you would otherwise never get if you were remote the whole time. So that's the first thing I would always recommend. The second thing is, uh, when it comes to team size, the, they call this the two pizza rules. As long as you have two pizzas, you can feed the whole team. That's the ideal team size. So typically it comes down to like seven and nine people at most. Or anything beyond that, two pizzas doesn't really work anymore. And it's a good guideline to be able to think about how many people you can actually lead and manage uh, before you have to introduce another layer of people and managers uh, and leaders uh, to to guide more people. And so if you want the highest productivity per team, you want to cap it at seven or nine people or so at most. Um, and that's kind of like a kind of like a standard thing across many companies uh, in the world that they've discovered. And I found that to be very true as well as I grew my business as well as that once we get to one team of 10 people, uh, it gets a little bit unwieldy because there's there could be a lot of miscommunication, people miss meetings, people have to catch up. Uh, there's a lot of time needed for one-on-one -on -one meetings and making sure everyone's on the same page and aligns. Because the biggest thing about teams is that we all want to row in the same direction at the same speed, rowing and being in sync at the same time. And if we can do that, then our boat can really go fast and far. But if we're, you know, 
one person is going east and the other person is going west, but we're trying to go north, there's no productivity. There's no alignments, right? So as a team, we want to make sure we have alignments every single day. Uh, and one of the things I have found to be most effective is having a daily huddle. And what that means is when you have a remote team, make sure everybody logs in at the same time for a 10-minute meeting. And during that 10-minute meeting, you go over everything that's on your task list. So if we're working on a project, we want to make sure everyone's talking about what's going on with this project. Where are we right now? What's coming up next? Where are we stuck? How can we make sure we're making progress? And just having that 10-minute check-in doesn't sound like a big deal, but I've noticed so many people um, feel like they're so much more productive because they can then ask questions. They can uh, interact with people. They can problem solve right on the spot versus doing it themselves. And so having a 10-minute meeting every single day actually allows the team to produce a lot faster compared to if everyone just works in silo and that communicates through email or Slack or some sort of instant messenger like Teams uh, because it's not quite the same collaboration that you get versus being on the same meeting for 10 minutes with with all of the people together. Yeah, also it would add a level of uh, accountability to what you're doing also, which is very helpful in many ways. So you have a podcast that is in the top 0.5%. That's not easy to do. That that takes a lot of effort and work. Could you give people some tips on how you did that? And what was, what was the hard part of that journey? Yeah, so I have a podcast called The Productivity Show, and uh, we just surpassed 13 million downloads. So we started this since 2016, and um, I think the biggest lesson I've learned is that we committed to doing an episode once a week, and we've never missed a week. So there's something about consistently showing up where you're delivering every single week that people really appreciate that helps you grow over time as well. Um, so I'm not a big fan personally of the podcasts that do seasons where they release like, let's say 12 episodes and then they're done for six months. Uh, and then you have to wait another six months before they release another batch. Uh, I know some po podcasts do that, but you never see those grow consistently because you just release one batch. It's a one hit wonder for maybe, you know, a week or so when everyone's tuning in, but then it kind of dies off. So what I've noticed personally with my own podcast and with other people's podcasts that I know of. Uh, personally behind the scenes is that you have to produce content on a consistent basis. That's the first thing is, can you be consistent with delivering on your podcast? The second thing I think I can attribute to our success is that we're always evolving. And what I mean with that is when we first started off, we actually did an hour and a half podcast every single time. And as I was listening to feedback from listeners uh, a lot of people found it very challenging to keep up with an hour and a half podcast. And so we start experimenting with different durations from like 15 minutes to 45 minutes to 60, 30. Uh, I think now our sweet spot is anywhere between 30 and 35 minutes or so. That's kind of our sweet spot because you can play it at 1.5 or a two speed and be able to listen to it uh, on a commute because I believe the average commute is anywhere between 20 to 25 minutes. And it, also when you're working out, 
you can listen to it and be done with your workouts by the time you're done listening to the podcast. And so we had to experiment quite a bit over the years to figure out what works best for most of our listeners. And we're willing to make those changes as well to say, hey, you know what? Uh, it's not about us. It's really about the listeners and what they want. And ultimately, they wanted a shorter podcast. And so uh, we went from hour and a half to 35 minutes. Now, I'm not saying that everyone should do 35-minute podcasts. What I am saying is once you're growing, listen to your audience and see if what you're doing is still resonating with them because times do change. Maybe early in the, in the days when there aren't were, there weren't so many podcasts, doing an hour, hour and a half was much easier. But now because there's so many different podcasts, there's a lot more competition. There's a lot more competition, not just from podcasts in your industry, but all the people's podcasts that are also competing for the listener's attention, right? Because they might also be interested in psychology. They might be interested in personal finance. They might be interested in crime scenes. They might be interested in all these other different podcasts that, you know, and there's only 24 hours in a day. So they have to pick and choose what they want to listen to. Uh, and then the third thing is naturally as a coach, uh, someone who teaches productivity, it's, I'm really excited about teaching concepts and how to do something. But one thing you cannot forget about podcasts as a medium is that people listen to it because they also want to be entertained. So you always want to make sure you're entertaining people as well. It's not just about giving them valuable information. They also want to be entertained. And you want to make sure that when you're delivering your podcast, that there's interesting stories, that there are jokes in it. It's more fun listening to the show than anything else that they're doing right now. And that's why they're listening in. And then if you can make it educational and something that they can use and make it practical, even better. Ideally, we want to have both, right? So some people like to call this infotainment. Give them information, but also entertain them at the same time. And I think uh, that's one of, been, one of the pivots we had to make as well that allowed us to continue to grow. Yeah, that's good information. So talk to us about some of your services that you provide for people and how do they get involved with those services? Yeah, so if you go to asianefficiency.com, you'll find tons of online courses and programs that we have. Uh, we have over 20 different courses that you can take. And it could be anything from optimizing your sleep to how to use your calendar, how to focus, um, how to organize your home to be more efficient, how to become organized with your files, folders, notes, uh, any digital assets that you have. So we have a lot of different programs uh, that we've created over the last few years. So it's really whatever you need. Um, however, our main methodology in signature program is called the 25X Productivity System. And this is our methodology for teaching productivity. And so the basic idea is that uh, after teaching thousands of clients, I've noticed that the most successful people and the most productive people that we've worked with, they have 25 skills in common. And if you want to master productivity, you want to make sure you have all 25 skills. And typically that would take you a few years to uh, achieve all of those things. And I know that's not for everybody, uh, but we introduce an introductory program to kind of get your fundamentals in place uh, with the right habits, the right mindsets, and it's called 25X Productivity System. Uh, we also have live workshops in person that we teach a few months uh, out of the year. And so if that's something you, you would be interested in, you could also find that on our website at uh, asianefficiency.com. All right. So a lot of this can be very consuming, uh, stressful. What keeps TAN going through all of it? 
Yeah, business can be stressful. Uh, managing a lot of people who have challenges in their life can be very stressful, especially if you're very empathetic like I am. Um, but what keeps me going is knowing that I'm making a difference when I meet clients in person or when I get those heartfelt emails, knowing that I made a difference uh, by sharing some of the materials I've created over the years um, is, I think, a testament for me to say that I'm doing something that's beneficial to the world, to society, and um, and it allowed me to live my life as well and make an income and make sure I take care of my family. And so uh, I think it's a win-win for everybody. And so I'm very fortunate to have turned a passion project into something that I do for a living now and also employing all these different people. Um, you know, I know everyone's kids and families and, you know, see them for dinner and, and holidays. And, you know, I really care for the people that work with me. And so uh, knowing that I'm able to help them out, you know, help them fulfill their dreams and accomplish some of the things that they have on their bucket list is uh, just as uh, exciting to me as well. That's pretty awesome. So before I let you go, do you have a call to action for our listeners? Also, tell people how to get a hold of you. Yeah, I would say if you're listening to this podcast, uh, go check out our podcast. It's called The Productivity Show. You can find it at theproductivityshow.com uh, or just in iTunes or Spotify. Just search for The Productivity Show and you'll find us. Um, and we also have a website where we have all of our resources for free available. So go to asianefficiency.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, just find me on Twitter at Asian Efficiency or on Instagram at Asian Efficiency. And I'm always checking uh, the inboxes there as well. So you'll be personally interacting with me on the social media uh, platforms. Dan, you're, you're an exciting individual with a lot of knowledge. And I like that you're sharing it with people that makes the world go around and we all get down the track further that way. I want to say thank you for that. And most of all, thanks for sharing it here with us today on the Dead America podcast. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. If you found this podcast enlightening, entertaining, educational in any way, please share, like, subscribe, and join us right back here next week for another great episode of Dead America Podcast. I'm Ed Waters, your host. Enjoy your afternoon, wherever you may be.